Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. In the 11th episode, I spoke with Francois, a senior product designer at Headspace. In 2017, he was asked to design a new cancellation process for Headspace users who decided they no longer want to use the service. At first, Francois thought this would be a boring task, but it quickly turned into his pet project. In the end, he even published an article on Medium describing his process and providing guidance to other designers who want to design the cancellation process too. As this is a great example of a project that needs careful balance of user focus and business knowledge, I decided to invite Francois to the podcast to actually discuss his process and to see how did he reconcile the two, so the user focus and the business goals. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. I've recently created an email course called Measuring Design, where I explain what are design metrics and how you can use them to measure your design work. And not only that, but also how you can present it to non-designers to basically show the value of your work. It's a free five-day email course with a nice framework that I call Design Metric Canvas that you can use on your projects. So to get access to the course, please head to beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Francois. Okay, Francois, thanks for taking the time. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Look, so uh, I'd like to kick off things with uh, getting to know you a little bit. So maybe let's start off by just hearing how did you even get into design? Sure. Um, I grew up in the north of Canada in Ontario, um, and I was always sort of uh, interested in, in technology and art. And uh, you know, I spent spent a lot of time when I was young skateboarding, and and I feel like that kind of interest in I don't know, I guess I guess alternative sort of subculture type things uh, like punk rock and skateboarding got me interested in in you know, the, looking at all the, the artwork related to that stuff and flipping through the magazines and, you know, that sort of led to an interest in photography, uh, and then wanting to kind of create my own graphics for things. So whether that was, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. album artwork for a band or trying to create my own skateboard decks, uh, you know, that that's, I think where it kind of began. And then, and then realizing that this, like this sort of interest could lead to, to a job, something that I could maybe do as a career uh, that led me to graphic design. Uh, and then that's what I kind of went to school for in the beginning. Um, I remember being in, being in high school and uh, originally thinking that my, you know, my interest in technology would lead me into uh, working in it. And I'm mm-hmm. really thankful that I don't work in it today because uh, <laughs> uh, you know it, it just seemed like a natural fit so yeah you know I, I liked to you know, dabble dabble on my pc and you know make things yeah. in photoshop and you know at, at a certain age you're not you're not really distinguishing between 
the fun you're having creating artwork and also like learning about computer networks and things. And this is, you know, this is a, a time where a lot of these things were very new. You know, like I remember plugging in my first, um, or I remember plugging in a, a laptop with a, and setting it up with a wireless connection for the first time ever and just being amazed that, you know, I could make this happen. Um, so, you know, all that, all those kind of interests just led to, uh, to design. And, and honestly, I never really questioned it beyond that. Uh, I never, I never, never really thought like, what could, what could this look like if I went into law or what if I became a dentist or what if I went to a more traditional job like mining or something, you know, just never really crossed my mind again, just kind of went, went full, full force. That's usually the sign that you've chosen the right thing, right? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But do you remember where was that tipping point where you kind of realized, oh, yeah, of course I'm interested in computers, but it's actually designed the thing that I'm kind of particularly interested in. Yeah, I think the the college I, I went to, I remember it was called Cambrian College, and I went to uh, like a, a bit of like a demo day where they introduced you to a lot of different programs uh, that you might that you might uh, uh, enroll in, and I remember one of my one of my old professors. Uh, he was showing the potential students what projects looked like uh, in that program, and and he showed us a packaging design uh, for a light bulb. Uh, you know, like a, like something you would put on the shelf in a in a store. And I remember just thinking, wow, I I've never thought about who creates the stuff that we see on shelves. And I think that, that was a big turning point in like, okay, this can be a real job. This is a, you know, this is like a serious thing that requires some strategy, some thoughtfulness, creativity, kind of all these things that, that I think I, I, I could be good at. Um, and then maybe stepping back a little bit, uh, the passion and the creativity part were probably fueled from, um, the, the first time I put together, um, artwork for, you know, one of my, one of my friends bands or something like that. And just seeing what that looked like coming from the, from the printers and seeing that, you know, it was a real tangible thing and that, you know, you could, you could hold it, you could, you could look at it, you could sell it. Somebody would be willing to purchase it because of that value that design added, uh, to the, to the product. So I obviously looked you up on LinkedIn. So I know sure. that you graduated from the design school just in the time of the biggest recession. So I would guess that your career and your design work uh, was heavily affected by the financial crisis. How did you even get through that time? Yeah, um, I mean, being being in Canada at the time, the the economy was was dipping a lot, but not quite as much as the U S economy. Uh, mm -hmm. things were a little more stable, but still like business was not, um, you know, projects were a little bit more difficult to come by. And what I always say is that there seemed to be work to be done, but a lot of companies who, you know, I was coming out of school and I was looking to get a full-time job and maybe some experience in a studio or in an agency or something. And a lot of companies were not quite hiring full-time roles at that mm -hmm. time, but there, there was still work to be done. 
Uh, and the sense I was getting was that, you know, projects were coming in and, and people needed to staff up teams, but they were a bit um, worried about making some, some bigger long-term commitments to hiring people. So I just sort of went uh, on my own a little bit and kind of made myself available uh, to those agencies. And I ended up uh, being a freelance like contract designer for several companies uh, during that time. And then that eventually led to me uh, starting my own company with a friend of mine called Bureau. Uh, and we did that for, oh God, it was close to uh, close to seven years. So now if we fast forward to today, like you are mm-hmm. a designer at Headspace, but maybe mm-hmm. if we focus just on the decision, so why did you decide to leave the agency work and join Headspace? Yeah, uh, I, th- that w- kind of happened in two steps. One was that I didn't want to be self-employed anymore. I wanted to have experience working on larger projects on a bigger team with more of a digital focus. Uh, and that led me to uh, working for Eden Speakerman in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was very familiar with the agency because uh, they, they're, they're, they're well known in, in Berlin and in Amsterdam. Uh, they do quite a bit of, of work there. That's where their sort of headquarters are. And they were, they were looking to expand uh, to North America and open up an LA office. And I was also looking to move to the West Coast, looking to move to, to America. And kind of all, all these things connected. And I ended up uh, working on Red Bull TV uh, while at Eden Speakerman. And that was, a, that was a great experience for that. I got to focus on one digital product for a longer period of time. And that, that was really interesting to me, you know, not having to go through the ins and outs of like client servicing and, you know, worrying yeah. about accounts coming in and, and that sort of freelance kind of self-employed life. Uh, so I got to be a designer again, which was really refreshing. And, it, you know, it, it did take some time for me to, to get to that point. And what, what's really funny is I was actually using the Headspace app while I was running my own, my own little agency and, meditating and looking inwardly and really thinking about, you know, what I want out of my future. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the end, Headspace helped me kind of get to a point where I realized I wanted to be a designer again. And um, by, by focusing on that and kind of, kind of really settling on the idea and being comfortable with it, uh, it made me confident to, to make the decisions uh, to shut down my company, uh, move to the U.S., work on Red Bull TV, and then eventually um, apply for a job at Headspace. So it kind of kind of came full circle. Yeah. So I think Headspace is becoming a very well-known brand also outside the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I guess a lot of listeners are asking themselves, you know, how do you get a job in, in a company like that? So how was your experience? Like, how did the whole application and the hiring process look like? Sure. Um, I think what, what helps when you're looking for, for any, any kind of job, whether that's at a startup or an agency or, or really any career, I think is to be chasing something you're genuinely interested in. Mm. That way, when you get to the point where you're, you're interviewing and you're meeting people, hopefully your interest is so authentic that you inspire them. And I, 
that was kind of my approach and that I, you know, I'd been studying meditation and mindfulness and looking into the whole app landscape and the, the sort of wellness and health world. And I'd, I'd already known so much about Headspace and its history and, and that I basically knew the, the app inside out uh, that when it came time to finally meeting somebody who worked at Headspace and finding out that they were looking to hire sometime soon, uh, I feel like I was very well in position uh, to, to capitalize on that. How, how big was Headspace then when you joined? Uh, we were roughly 100 people. And we're, we're at around, I think, 210 or 215 today. And you just reached uh, 1 million subscribers, right? 1 million subscribers, yeah. Yeah, wow. we're, we're really proud of that. It's, uh, it's a big moment for the company. Uh, I think it's a big moment for... for like wellness and health technology yeah. as well. I think it's, uh, it, you know, obviously we, we want to continue growing and we want to, to bring kind of the health and happiness to more people because we can, we can really see that this product makes a difference. I mean, we, we hear it from users all the time. We have a, a presentation at our, at our company all hands every week where uh, some of our customer experience team will, will report back, like letters and reviews and things people have have said about Headspace, and it's so inspiring to get that that kind of communication back from your users uh, that you know what you're doing is really helpful to them. I mean, it really makes it uh, a, for me it makes it a lot more exciting uh, mm -hmm. having feel, feeling like it it's a bit more me like meaningful and purposeful. You know, when you're when you're designing, that it's not like you said, sort of just to to win a cool award or to you know, be, be known as the best flashiest designer out there. <laughs> okay. it, the, you know, design is a byproduct of, of making stuff your users really want or need. Yeah. And having an impact. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, so congratulations again for reaching the 1 million subscriber mile, uh, milestone, and I guess you were a big part of this too, um, especially the article that uh, I read on Medium where you explain, um, by the way, a great article for all the listeners out there um, talking about the leaky uh, bucket problem, uh, which is basically also the reason why I invited, why did you do podcast, Francois, is to talk about this process that you took and the results that you had in Headspace in basically designing the um, how would you, how would we call it unsubscription process or yeah, like cancellation flow cancellation or... process? Exactly. Yeah. So maybe to kick things off, just can you kind of recap the article? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was tasked with a project to kind of review the headspace cancellation flow, uh, be, you know, because we were like a lot of, a lot of apps, we were building things so, so fast over the years and, you know, the, the cancellation flow is not the most exciting part of a product. You know, in <laughs> fact, it's usually, the, it's usually the most, like the most easily ignored aspect because it, you know, it's not the cool like experience that people are looking for when they download your app. It's usually the thing they do when they decide uh, that they're done with you. And so I decided, you know, I'd rather look at this in a positive sense and not look at it uh, negatively and really approach it, you know, being being curious and and wanting to learn as much as I could about this, and then you know hopefully once I had an understanding, uh, 
come up with some some design ideas around how we could do it. Uh, but the throughout the whole process, I, I just wrote down all of my thoughts and kind of documented every step of the way. Uh, and that's how the article was kind of born. Um, at a certain point, once you've, you've begun and, and finished a project, if you documented it well, you basically have a, an article that you can share with folks. So that's kind of the idea. Um, but on, on one hand, I had, I had business folks and PM product managers, you know, telling me sort of do this, do that. And, you know, these are, these are the, you know, these are the quick wins on how we can, we can mitigate the, the churn or the, the cancellation for a while. And then I had uh, folks on the user experience team who were, were really big believers in giving a user exactly, uh, exactly what they're looking for, which is, you know, a big red cancel button. And I, I decided, you know, I think, I think I could have kind of followed either way, but in the end decided to, to land somewhere in between and thought, you know, can I balance business goals with user needs? Is there an elegant way of doing this? And it, it was a total risk. And for sure, like, you know, you're talking about the article, I, it was published in November, 2017. So it's been out for a little while and, and, you know, we have made changes to that cancellation flow today. And we're always testing, you know, different, different variations of it and learning more and more. So it's, it's not something that's ever really complete. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the article is basically just a recap and it it kind of starts off with saying that, you know, retention is, is kind of the key. If you, if you've got a really poor product and it's not offering anything to people, you can't trap them uh, into the subscription and, mm-hmm. and keep them subscribed and happy. That's, that's not going to work. You need like the retention is key and you need to make sure you're always adding value, giving users, you know, what they want or what, you know, what they will want in the future. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. And then you've got, you know, the, the leaky bucket idea. I learned this from, from a product manager friend of mine who, you know, that was his simple way of explaining what churn was. And, you know, being a, being an agency designer, getting into the startup world, there's so much terminology that I had no idea about, you know, talking about LTV and churn and retention and all these, all these words that, you know, basically sent me into, uh, you know, doing a lot of Google searching on, on business terminology. Uh, but I, I thought, you know, better to get, better to get interested in it and learn as much as I could, then I could actually use design in a meaningful way to you know to uh to make kind of some business changes um yeah so the the idea of the article is just get get to know why people are canceling intimately you know learn as much as you can from from your customer experience team from your users do some interviews talk to anyone who might know anything about this stuff and use all of that as an input into guiding your design Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can do the easy thing, which is, you know, what's our competitor doing? Uh, go take a look at that stuff. And you know, I, I, I do recommend that you go look at what your competitors are doing, but uh, definitely leave some room for, you know, to give it your own kind of interpretation or find your own, your own kind of solution to whatever design problem you're facing. Um, so yeah, that, that's the article is a bit of a, a recap on that and um, kind of ends on, on saying, you know, every product's cancellation flow is going to look different because every 
every segment of users that subscribe to an app have, you know, different needs, different goals. And so this is really just a kind of an inspiration article on what, what kind of stuff you, you might do, or you might consider. Mm -hmm. So if we look specifically at the process you took right now, what was the first thing you've done? Like when I began the project? Yes. Uh, first thing I did was talk to customer experience because we, we get, you know, lots of emails from users. I chatted with them and I, I wanted a list of the top 10 reasons people cancel their accounts. Mm. And I, you know, I printed that out, put it next to my laptop at my desk and looked at that every day. <laughs> and, you know, you try to put yourself in the shoes of, of a user and it, you know, when you're working inside a company in a, in an, in, in a startup or a, a subscription based company, it's so easy to forget that when someone cancels your, uh, their subscription, they're not, they're not trying to insult you. They've just made a, a decision that, you know, this thing is no longer serving me. And, or there's a reason, you know, maybe they're confused. Maybe they, they haven't learned how to use the product in a way that, that works for them. Or maybe they've, they're just frustrated about something. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the kind of the original approach to, to the cancellation flow was to try to intercept that a little bit, but not adding too many steps in between a user saying, I want to cancel and finally canceling. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that was kind of the starting point and the inspiration yeah. to understand why is it happening. Yes. But, but just to stay on this point a little bit, did you get um, emails and conversation between the customer support and customers or was it kind of the questionnaire with, um, you know, just percentages of users that um, canceled because of different mm. reasons? Yeah, a little bit of both. I think we, we, we had been collecting some data, but a lot of it was very old. So that was, you know, I got to get a look at that stuff and see kind of the percentages. But then really getting into some, some specific emails and, and reasons why. And, you know, one thing that I've noticed is designers are, you know, we really want to solve problems all our, all on our own. And we want to kind of wear the, wear the crown of achievement of, you know, Hey, I, I designed this entire thing myself and look at me and I'm, you know, I'm such a great designer. And when you involve other people in the process, it makes it so much easier and you end up creating something that's so much better and more effective. And it, the, the look on the customer experience team, when you, you actually ask them for their input and for uh, insights on, on how something might inform a project you're working on. I mean, they were, they were more than happy to share and it, they almost didn't even need to, to send examples. You know, they could almost list reasons why off mm. the top of their heads. Like they, they knew, they knew, they knew much more than, than the design team did. Mm, cool. Okay. So after you compiled this knowledge or mm -hmm. when you synthesize the reasons mm -hmm. behind it, what is the next step? Um, you know, th this could go a couple different ways. I mean, my, my next step was to take a look at what else was out there. You know, what are the, 
mm-hmm. the big players doing? What is Netflix doing? What is Hulu doing? You know, the, we're a subscription-based product. And so looking at what other subscription-based businesses were doing. What was your favorite example, maybe? Favorite example? Yeah. Um, there's, there's one example of, um, it's an old one. It's, it's no longer live anymore. But when you cancel your Spotify subscription, uh, they show you the Jackson 5, I Want You Back uh, song <laughs> on the cancellation flow. And they, that just cracked me up. I don't know why they got rid of it. I'm, I'm sure they, you know, they, they ran some tests and, and maybe they got complaints from users or something. I'm, I'm not really sure. But I, I thought that was funny. I thought, you know, even when you're in the flow of canceling and if, if you, even if you're in a, a, you know, a terrible mood while doing so, that, that's got to crack you up. Mm. Um, yeah and then the uh, the next step after that was to just start uh, mocking up some like getting some sketches going and, and just trying to wireframe something and knowing that you know you're not going to nail it the first time around it just just the ideation and get some things up on a whiteboard and show people and talk through it um, and then you know hopefully settling on on something that you can then put together uh, a more, a more, um, fully designed, uh, page too. Mm-hmm. So in your mind and from mm-hmm. your experience, mm-hmm. what are the design principles of good conciliation experience? I would say some, some terms would be maybe like clarity, uh, like quickness or speed, mm-hmm. uh, just you know, being, being very clear with, with wording and language, not, not using technical terms, um, quickness and speed, just being able to get a user from start to finish pretty quickly. So if you're going to try to kind of intercept the cancellation, make sure that there's always kind of an exit ramp. That's very obvious. Uh, that way, you know, that way they're, they're, they're minimizing frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then empathy, you know, just realizing that, uh, somebody could be canceling for many reasons. You know, one of them could be, they haven't found the value in your product and to the, the other far end of the spectrum, if you're a subscription based business, um, you know, and you, you, something like Netflix and you've got, uh, a user who's got a family of four and that, you know, it's, it's toward the end of the month and they could use that extra $15 for something else. Uh, and that, you know, that could be the reason they're canceling. And so not to treat people poorly on the cancellation flow, kind of treat it with care and make sure that, you know, when a user cancels that they kind of know, uh, the door is always open, you know, we'll, we'll kind of like the product is still here. We're still happy to have you kind of join the community or subscribe again and get access to, you know, this, this content or this information. Um, and then, so yeah, what do we got? We got speed, empathy, and clarity. And then I guess, um, it might sound funny, but the forgiveness, just sort of making sure that you don't make people feel bad mm-hmm. about canceling. Mm. How do you achieve that? I mean, I, I think it could be, different for for any product 
but giving them the sense that your cancellation flow is just as well crafted as your onboarding flow. And also balancing that with not being annoying. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to trigger six emails over two weeks once somebody cancels, you know, send them, send them kind of one meaningful email, make sure that they know the door is open. If you want to come back, Mm -hmm. here's how you do it. Um, in, in our case, when I worked on this stuff, um, the cancellation email was not, you know, it was not crafted like a, like a super flashy kind of growth type of email. It was more like a, more of a personalized kind of handwritten letter style. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not literally handwritten, but kind of put together by a real person. That was the kind of the sense I was trying to, to get. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, so when listening to you about his design principles, it felt it's it, it obviously very user centered, right? Mm-hmm. But now from, from the results you got, would you say that having these kind of, um, user centered design principles in the cancellation process also improves the business results? Yeah, absolutely. It, it did make a difference. And I think it, it made a difference because the business is successful if you treat the users well. And when users feel respected, I think that that creates an even bigger kind of brand message that, you know, this is a company that's, that's helpful. That's not trying to take advantage of us. Um, they care about, you know, more than just getting your money. They want to make sure that you know, you're getting a good experience using the product and that you are well-informed throughout the process. Uh, are there any results that you can share? Or if you cannot talk about specific numbers, maybe just, you know, what did you observe was it that people came back or people didn't leave or people stayed longer? Right. Yeah, we we did notice immediately that people stuck around longer. Mm-hmm. And then after about six months or so, uh, we started to get some emails that the cancellation flow was a bit too difficult to get through. And, you know, that's, I think that's great because here, here we were thinking, you know, Hey, we've, we've kind of solved it. We've got a, a great solution. This works, but it's just proof that you can always improve and you do need to listen to, to what users are saying about your, about your design work or about your flows, about your product. And so then, you know, we kind of went back to the drawing board and continued to iterate on that flow learn more, test more and see, um, see what else we could do to, uh, to make a difference And that, you know, you're, you're not going to solve it the first time around. Mm-hmm. So was the scope of this project or so was it like in general, the retention project or was it just the cancellation? And what I mean by this question right. is, you know, the part of, um, when somebody is already canceling, they're in the mindset of canceling. Mm-hmm. If you really want to 
um, improve the retention, then you can also think about the stages before that, you know, the early signs of churn. Right. Yeah, the um, the project was purely a cancellation flow project. There were some mm-hmm. other teams that, you know, that were working on that, that kind of data analysis, looking at, you know, what the trends are around users churning. You know, if you if you're inactive for this period of time, or if you've kind of done these certain behaviors, you're more or less likely to churn. Uh, so there's there's definitely other teams that are working on that stuff. Um, but yeah, this was purely a, a cancellation flow project. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny that we're talking about it because it was almost a, it was almost like a side project, mm-hmm. uh, within Headspace. You know, I was, I was working on a, on a different team. Uh, and then there was an opportunity to kind of look at this project as a bit of a, a bit of a pet project. So why did you find it interesting? Uh, you know, at first I didn't find it interesting at all. I thought, you know, this, this is like, this is so boring. This is going to be, uh, like I'll never use this in a portfolio. Why, you know, why would I, I'm not excited about this at all. And, um, then I just, the more I learned, the, the more interested I got. And I like to think that this kind of kickstarted my interest in, uh, learning more about the business side of things and how design can contribute uh, meaningfully to a business um, beyond more than, you know, things that, that look good and feel good. Um, and it also got me talking to, uh, to some uh, product managers more often, you know, now I'm, now I know a little more about that, that side of um, you know, that side of a company and uh, feel like I can kind of hold my own in that sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a very very naive question, but nevertheless. So, why is it good to talk to product managers? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to work with them every day in your job, and I don't believe like that. That's on the personal side, you know. Like it, it's just much easier if you can have a personal kind of rapport with your PMs. Then you become mm-hmm. a little more than just a designer like designer for hire you know you can actually contribute to the roadmap you can contribute to the way we might approach a project from a design perspective um, and and really talk through how that will affect the business uh, so you can you can be a bit more strategic about your design work you know some some designers are okay with with just being designers but you know, after after a certain amount of time, you, you do grow a bit tired of, um, I like to call it being a design servant, which is just, you know, mm-hmm. kind of just giving <laughs> giving people what it is they've asked for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it much more rewarding personally to, to contribute in a, you know, more kind of meaningful, full and, and multifaceted way. So speaking of connecting business and design, I actually... Mm-hmm. On your Twitter account, I've seen <laughs> that you actually have a very interesting book. Uh, I mean, you have a few of them. Uh, so you have like books underneath your monitor, probably mm-hmm. to be higher, <laughs> I guess, for your posture. Yeah. Uh, but one of the books is Hacking Growth, uh, which is a phenomenal book, especially I think for designers. Uh, 
so maybe let's talk a little bit about it. So how did you like that one? Sure. Uh, the The book is actually sitting above the, it's not, the monitor isn't sitting on the book. The book is just resting on the monitor. Um, oh, okay. so, <laughs> the monitor is perfect height, but the, uh, the book, I mean, I guess that, that book came out sometime last year and, um, I had been working on the headspace kind of core product experience for, for roughly one year. And then we had an opportunity to, to put some designers on a growth team. And so I, I ended up, uh, deciding that I'd like to, to try my hand at, at working on a growth team and, you know, realizing that I don't, I don't know everything and there's a lot to learn out there. Uh, that book seemed like a really, uh, a really key piece of reading to kind of get a better understanding of how to approach growth, uh, in a startup environment. And it's, uh, yeah, it's by Sean Ellis, uh, who founded Growth Hackers? Um, yeah, it's called Hacking Growth. Yeah, and I, you know, it it reads it it reads a little bit like uh, it's very much like split into chapters. You know, sort of like you get the inspirational part, and then they talk about um, how different companies have approached growth. Uh, you know, you've got like a little Facebook piece in there. There's a, a huge part about Dropbox mm-hmm. and you know, different strategies and tools that they used to contribute to their growth. Um, and you really realize that growth looks different at every company. Of course, oh, there's a, of course a piece about uh, Airbnb and how they used, uh, I think they used like Craigslist as part mm-hmm. of their, their kind of growth strategy. And it was very much like a time and place thing where they were able to, you know, to kind of get things to post automatically um, from the, from the listings into Craigslist. And, you know, eventually that a sort of loophole was closed, but at that point they'd already elevated themselves and grown so much, um, that, you know, the, the, the heavy lifting was done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just, just wrapping my mind around growth and what that means. And I think the, the biggest takeaway for me was seeing that, that growth is not necessarily, a a set of tasks or things you do. It's really a mindset and that uh, you need to kind of evangelize that throughout the company uh, to really, to really get to that growth stage and really make kind of make the best of it. Is there any growth tactic that you guys use at Headspace and that you can share? Growth tactic. Um, The biggest thing for Headspace is that our users love talking about us. And it's perfect. <laughs> they, they, they want to talk, they want to share. And, you know, one of the, one of the features we, we added into the app, uh, not too long ago was just a, a shareability function. And, you know, that's, that's interesting from a design perspective, because, you know, if somebody were to ask a designer who had no background knowledge on the product, you know, Hey, can you, can you add a share function on this, you know, on this app or on this website or whatever? Uh, I think the the instinct would be to you know, just add a big share button, you know, put it on, <laughs> put it on every page, you know, put it in the footer, you know, you just like get people to share. But I think the key in doing this in in the right way, the the user centric way, is to see 
what are users naturally sharing? And we could, you know, we could see just going through Twitter and Instagram, looking through the, like Headspace hashtags that users were sharing certain screens more than others. You know, they were very proud of their run streaks. They were very proud of mm. uh, their minutes meditated. Uh, and so, you know, adding, adding a share function to things people were already sharing, uh, that was, you know, the, the answer was kind of always there. Mm. We just awesome. made it a little bit easier. Awesome. Um, going back to the topic of, um, learning more about business. So hacking growth was one thing, anything else in particular that you, that comes to mind when talking about this topic? Yeah. I mean, just, just getting to know the terminology and kind of making sure that you understand what people around you are saying. And at one point it all kind of clicks and you realize, Oh wow, I can, you know, I, can sort of stand mm-hmm. on my own two feet in a business meeting. Uh, there are several like articles, you know, I think I, I, I can't think of them off the top of my head, uh, but maybe we can link them in the show notes or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can send them to you afterward. Um, articles about growth at Facebook, uh, articles about um, retention. Um, it was, I think it was, uh, there was a post on the, Anderson Horowitz uh, blog that was very helpful about retention kind of being number one, the number one thing a company should, should aim for. Um, that was, that was a good one. And I think that gave me uh, kind of the confidence to, uh, to really, really think that, you know, I, I can handle the, I can kind of handle the, the business side of this. Mm. Cool. Yeah. So before we wrap things up, uh, probably just a question that that's on everyone uh everyone's mind uh it's about the headspace culture you know like uh, sure. you probably get this question all the time but i really yeah. want to know like how zen and how calm is really headspace culture you know from the outside it feels like you guys have to be the calmest company in the world how true right, is that right. does everybody meditate every day like how do you how do you do that here's the thing i think there's a way to balance both. And, you know, we are, we are a business, we are a company and we do work very hard. Uh, but the, the work-life balance I think is, is very well respected. Uh, and that's not, that's not even just like a top down thing where we're, you know, we're being told to, to kind of take time off and stuff. I think that's just something that everyone here believes. And it's not something that we need to you know, be convinced like, Hey Frank, you need to, you need to take uh, take a week off. You look like you're burning out or whatever. Um, that, that aspect of it is, is, is kind of just there in the company. Um, we, people meditate every day for sure. We have a couple of meditation sessions, uh, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Um, that's, that's definitely optional. Uh, but meditation is so ingrained in the company and, and in the team that it kind of just feels like, like a natural fit uh, in a business environment at this point. I've been here for about two years now and uh, to have a little five minute meditation before we have an important meeting uh, that it, in the beginning, I remember thinking, this is so strange. I've, I've never <laughs> thought this would happen in my life. And like, how am I, how did I get a job at this company that 
that is doing, you know, that, that has kind of such a, um, a care for, for employees. Uh, but yeah, it, it's so ingrained and having Andy, who's the voice of the product, you know, him having trained in the Himalayas in Tibet and being, you know, being a, an ordained monk at one point in his life, uh, having him kind of at the top and a figure that we, you know, we interact with on a daily basis. I think that that has a ripple effect for sure. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a, I would say it's a calm environment, but it's, it's also a business. So mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're, we're doing stuff. Um, it's, it's, uh, I don't think we would be able to, to achieve the things we want to achieve, um, if we were not, you know, not taking it seriously as a business. Mm-hmm. But it's great to have a culture where it's, um, accepted to meditate, I guess. Right. Um, I remember when I started my first job and, uh, I was mm-hmm. trying to sneak out, you know, to, to go right, right, to right. the toilet or to, uh, yeah vacant meeting room to kind of meditate it just felt like yep. you know i was oh it just felt weird <laughs> i know what you mean i know what you mean i yeah it's uh it's cool i'm i'm glad that it's a normal thing for me to see colleagues at work meditating you know sometimes you'll just walk past someone's desk and they're sitting you know they're sitting with their their browser open and they're <laughs> they've got sketch open on their laptop and <laughs> Uh, but they've got their headphones in and their eyes shut and uh, you just sort of walk past them and, and respect that. And uh, totally normal, totally normal thing here. Cool. Francois, thanks a lot for your time and for all the knowledge you shared. Maybe just as a last question, um, where can listeners learn more about your work or maybe get in touch with you? Uh, probably the, the best place because I don't have a proper portfolio website up right now, uh, would be on Twitter. It's just twitter.com slash Frank Chartrand, F-R-A-N-K-C-H-A-R-T-R-A-N-D. And, uh, yeah, send me a, if you want to have any questions or anything, send a, send a tweet, send me a DM or whatever. Uh, I'll probably be quicker to respond there than if you, if you try to send me an email or send me a message on LinkedIn or something. Sometimes those, uh, those pile up for weeks before I get around to them. Cool. Well, thanks again, really. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, have a good rest of your day and uh, really appreciate you bringing me on. Cool. That's it in today's episode. If you do like this show or this episode, I kindly ask you to consider leaving a review or a comment on iTunes or any other podcast app for that matter. Um, This really helps me a lot in getting great guests and also um, it helps other listeners find this show easier on these crowded uh, podcasts apps. And again, if you're interested in how to measure design, to basically show the value of your design work to non-designers and to also know yourself how you're doing, like how you can track the progress of your work, head to beyondusers.com and there you can sign up for a five-day free email course and um, in there you will learn what design metrics are, how you can use them on your projects and um, you'll also get to download a free design metric canvas 
which is a framework that you can use in your projects to identify all the appropriate and necessary metrics. So for that, head to beyondusers.com. Cool, that's it for today. Thanks for your attention and see you soon.